I love that we just sang, Oh Christ, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. That's the goal today. I wanted to highlight the other lyrics we sang just as, uh, right before that, it's a newer song. Blake sang, Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. That's awesome, amen? Hey, let me pray for us, not because it's a ritual or tradition before I preach, but because I need God's help, and you need God's help as we look to his word together. So let's do that. God, we love you and we're thankful for your word. Thankful, Lord, that in a world of lies and confusion and ambiguity, we have the clear, uncut truth of God's word, an objective reality, Lord, that's laid out before us in a word of God that is just as culturally relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And Lord, as we look to the past today, would you invigorate our hearts for how it impacts us in this very moment? Lord, fill me with your spirit. Fill us all with your spirit as we open up your truth. And we pray with the psalmist, open my eyes, O God, that I may behold the wonderful things within your word. And Christ, reveal your glory through the preaching of it. We love you, God, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. I had a hard time figuring out what to wear to church today, um, not because I'm colorblind, but because a, I didn't know where my dad was at in the cadence of his outfits. The man from Armani, the man from Tommy Bahama, or the man from Snowy River. I never know. The cowboy hat or a suit, um, but my dad's in Texas, or wasn't, I think he's in Texas now. And I was in Mexico this week, and he's my favorite guy. And when I come to church here, it's my favorite people. And so I love this church. It feels like home. It is home. After my sophomore year of college, my dad and the rest of my family moved up here while I was still down south. And it's crazy when you just look at God's providence in my life. That was nine years ago. Uh, just how God has been so kind to, to me in moving my dad and mom and here, and I'm just so thankful for this church and thankful to be open or opening up God's word with you today. E.W. Tozer said in a familiar quote that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you. Maybe you've heard that quote before, but he goes on to communicate that when we think of God, that is the most determining, defining element of our entire life. No man's religion, your religion is not higher than your ideas of God. A low view of God sets a low ceiling on our spiritual life. The most revealing thing about a nation is their view of God. The most revealing thing about a church is their view of God. And the most revealing thing about you and your life is your view of God. A low view of God leads to low views of his holiness, which leads to low views of your sin which leads to low views of the cross, which leads to low views of his grace. And if your view of grace is low, then it surely is not amazing, even if that's what you sing. Low views of God make the Christian life boring, mundane, mechanical, and monotonous. I love what we sang this morning. I, I love worship, and 
even as we sang, bless the Lord, O my soul. There's an element as we come into church where your heart and my heart are not prone to worship. We sing it, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So there is an element where we provoke our own hearts to worship God. But there's something I'm going to promise you from the beginning today, and a lot of you guys know me. I never have to posture passion. I never do. I'm thankful for that. So even as we look at the truth of God's word today, I'm not, I'm not pretending to do something. I, I, I believe this. And if you've been in the truth your entire life, I hope that you believe this as well. The joyful responsibility of the church is to know God. It is to know who he is. It is their greatest joy and responsibility is to magnify their understanding of God. Our life, your life, is the overflow of what you think about God. Our view of God is the template, the lenses by which we see every single event, circumstance, trial, situation, struggle, and temptation. It determines your view of God, that is, how you speak, act, serve, spend your time, talents, and treasures. Everything hinges on who you believe God to be. I remember reading in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, this quote by Spurgeon when I was 19. It was the summer that I first came here and did Camp Seven Oaks with the Muxlows. And there at the beginning of chapter one, Packer quotes Spurgeon. He says, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy that can ever engage the person of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work of the great God that he calls Father. He says, there is something so exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infamy. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to the master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, I am but of yesterday, and I know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to humble the mind than thoughts of God. And next to this quote, it says this Spurgeon preached in 1855 when he was 19 years old. That's why Spurgeon. Jeremiah 9 says, that let him who boast, boast in this, that they know me. You were made to boast. That's not a product of the fall. You were made to boast. And you are made to boast in one thing, that you know God and that he knows you. Today we're going to look at one of the defining elements of who God is, a feature that highlights so many of his attributes. Today we are going to boast, brag, and proclaim who God is as a glorious king as a glorious king. Today, millions around the world are gathering to celebrate what is known as Palm Sunday. 
And the great danger for them and for us is that if you've grown up in the church, you know the story really well. You know it. It's a tradition. So our goal then, for my own heart, you guys understand the environment that I grew up in. For the goal is to defamiliarize myself with the truth that I've become so accustomed to so that scripture never becomes cliche to me, so that I never become apathetic based upon the familiarity of a passage that should bring me to my knees. You and I need to make strange what has become standard in our life by means of tradition. There's nothing normal about this. The goal of preaching and the goal of church is not doctrinal accumulation. It's worship. Truth is not the end. Truth is a means to an end. And the end and the goal is worship. Turn to 2 Chronicles 26. And we're going to jump around to three different passages today. But I want to start in 2 Chronicles 26. Partially because you haven't been there since the last time you failed at your Bible reading plan. But also because it's going to set us up well for where we're going. 2 Chronicles Old Testament, 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, as the song goes. 2nd Chronicles 26. It says, And all the people, verse 1 of Judah, took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his father's. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jekyliah of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued, verse 5, to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Uzziah becomes king of Judah, he's 16 years old, and he's about to reign for 52 years. And it says that he did right in the sight of God. And notice there's a condition attached here. He said, as long as, verse 5, he sought the Lord, God prospered him. The Bible is full of necessary conditions. Unless someone believes, he will not inherit the kingdom of God. As long as this 16-year-old sought God, God would prosper him. And God did prosper him. We see that in the following verses, he establishes borders Business is booming. He elevated the economy. Verse 10, he built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock. Verse 11, moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster. How big of an army? Verse 13, 307,000 standing men. Verse 15, in Jerusalem he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. 
Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Uzziah was famous. He's a famous king. Verse 16. But. Anytime you see that in the Bible, you pay attention. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Here's what's happening. In the Old Testament, only a priest could offer any sort of sacrifice or incense in the temple. This is littered throughout the book of Numbers. You don't do this. But here's how Uzziah's life had played out. He had become academically elite when it comes to understanding God. He was familiar with the truth of God and he became very comfortable, very casual, cavalier with God. He bypasses the priestly system and says, I'm going to waltz into the temple and I'm going to do my own thing. He had become very nonchalant with God. What's up, bro? He's numb to the holiness of God. His strength his teaching, his biblical acumen, his influence had gone to his head so that he presumes and assumes that God is going to continue to bless him even though he had deliberately rejected God's voice. I hope you grasp the gravity of this. Anybody that did this that was not a priest, it says over and over again throughout the Old Testament, was to be put to death immediately. But Uzziah, God's my homie. He is relaxed towards God. God's holiness was theologically affirmed, but practically denied as he waltzes into the house of God. Verse 17. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests. Azariah's going, what are you doing? You don't belong here. And it says that King Uzziah was enraged, about to respond, who do you think you are? I am the king. It says at that moment, verse 19 and while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the altar of incense. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. That's how the story ends. So calm, so cool, casual, cavalier, nonchalant, numb to who God is. Who do you think you are? I am the king. And God says, no, you're not. Leprosy, an instant death sentence at that time. And it says that he was a leper till the day of his death, which means that he watched his son rule and reign over his kingdom as a recluse in a hole, looking out over the kingdom that he once reigned over, constantly being reminded by the sores all over his body that there was only one king. But that was a 52-year reign Turn to Isaiah 6. 
in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah the prophet is going to see a greater king who no defilement can ever touch, a king that would reign not for 52 years, but for all of eternity. Look at verse 1 with me. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. There's no coincidences in the Bible. In the year of King Uzziah's death, we pass over that. No, there's something happening here. The people followed their king, and their king had a far too human view of God. Far too human view of their creator. It's no surprise that when they have become so familiar with God, so casual with God, because they have a diminished and suppressed view of his holiness, that Isaiah in that very same year is going to have an exalted view of who their true king is. There's no coincidences in the Bible. He says, and I saw the Lord. Now, this is not the full glory of God. But one writer says, there is in this, Calvin is saying this, he says he never appeared as he actually is, that's God, but to the capacity that man could bear to receive. And as Isaiah is about to describe what he saw, he's going to talk about what was around the throne, but he's never going to describe God himself in form and appearance because no one can see God and live. But he sees a manifestation here of what God is like. One writer says that there is enough in these few verses to occupy the greatest scholar in a glorified body with a glorified mind for all of eternity. He saw the Lord and he's sitting on a throne God is not seated on a lazy boy. He's not relaxing. It's not a beach chair. It's not an Adirondack. It's not a pew where he can watch and be entertained. It's not a conference table for him to get the opinion of his buddies. It is a throne where he is ruling and reigning. He's not slouched. He's not kind of leaning to the side. He's sitting on a throne. And it's not at eye-to-eye level. Where is it? It's lofty. And exalted. Matthew Henry says, This throne is high and above all competition. Notice what this king is wearing. It says, With the train of his robe filling the temple with glory. Everything and everywhere, there's no room to stand because the train of his robe is so magnificent. When I've been to Papua New Guinea and you go into uh, a tribe, you often get greeted by someone wearing a large headdress. It's like, that thing's taller than you are. And it's up there and it's a sign of their majesty. How many, you know, it's like, that thing is that high because that's how many men he's killed. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, and you get a little freaked out. But it's a sign of their royalty, their power. And in ancient times, the robe was what was the definitive measure of the rule and reign of a monarch. 
this robe can't be measured. It fills the temple. One writer says, his glorious robes reach the bottom of the temple. He has no ordinary majesty. There is nothing modest here. When we think of God, we don't really think of him as someone who is proud. But God is not being discreet when he sits upon the throne. There's nothing modest about God. It fills the temple. It's lavish. Notice the king's audience in verse 2. It says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, we sing in holy, 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 you know, it says, Seraphim and cherubim bowing down before him. Now, when you think of angels, at least the cherubim, you think of some, well, maybe you're not like me, some fat baby eating a gogurt on a cloud crawling around. I don't know, gogurts are in heaven. But at least those applesauce is from Costco. Um, money. But this is a warrior. A warrior. Seraphim stood above him. We see an idea of what the seraphim are like in Revelation 4. They have eyes all around them. And they are literally, that word means burning ones. Burning ones. They are on fire like a dragon. They are wrapped in fire. And they each have six wings. God gives them unique anatomy to fulfill their function and purpose. I was watching something on planet Earth and it was describing how the panda has a sixth appendage. And it's because they need that, it's really a wrist bone to grab leaves from the tree. They need a greater degree of dexterity. God makes all his creatures uniquely to fulfill their purpose and function. And these seraphim have been uniquely created by God. Six wings. Two, they cover their face. Why do they cover their face? Because they can't look at God. He's too holy. He's too wonderful. And they're hiding. Because as Isaiah approaches the throne, they're also saying, don't look at me. I am nothing here. Uzziah wanted all the attention. These seraphim, mighty warriors, the closest in proximity to God, say, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. With two, they covered their feet. Why? Because feet are a symbol of our creatureness. They are a symbol of our Impurity, and yet these seraphim are not tainted by sin. They are in the presence of God. But they understand the distinction between even them and God's holy nature. And it says with two, they flew. It's a ready response to the call of God. That's their anatomy. But let's look at their anthem in verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're calling back and forth to one another. It's not humming or mumbling. 
It's crying out. It's saying they're calling out to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at the aftermath. What's happening here? And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called while the temple was filling with smoke. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake, but it feels like an eternity, even if it's for a second, right? And it says here that the foundations of the thresholds are trembling, not because of tectonic shifting, but because of the one who speaks. Well, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. This is the highest degree of superlative in the Bible. When you guys want to emphasize something in text, you either bold, italics, underline. When the Bible does that, and you know this, it says it again and again. Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, or amen, amen. Paul says, if anybody preaches to you another gospel, let him be accursed. And again, I say, let him be accursed. When the Bible wants to emphasize something, when it's telling you and I, grabbing us by the proverbial shoulders, and wants us to know something about God, it repeats it. And here's the only thing in the Bible that's repeated regarding the character of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does this even mean? When we think about holy, we often think this means moral perfection or sinlessness. But God's holiness is not just perfection and purity and sinlessness. That's a secondary meaning to it. God's holiness means that he is completely other. It is separate, a cut above. He is not just a better version of you or the genie version of you. Sinclair Ferguson says God's holiness means he is separate from sin. But holiness in God also means wholeness with the WH. God's holiness is his Godness. It is his being in all that it means for him to be God. To meet God in his holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and consequently not a man. God's holiness is not a quantitative difference, meaning that God is not like us, but bigger and better. It's not quantitative, it's qualitative. God's holiness is completely different. It's nothing like you. He is not the upgraded version of Johnny, or the improved version of you. He is completely other than you. And this is why in Exodus 15, 11, the question is asked, who is like the Lord? What's the answer? No one. Who is like the Lord? Majestic in holiness. What, differenti- what differentiates God 
from you and I is his holiness. Who is like the Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises. You are not almost God. He is who he is. God never points outside of himself to define himself. He only points to him. That's why when Moses says, what's your name? He says, I am who I am. Really, that's saying I is who I is. I can't define, you, you would never understand Moses. He is not just in a different league than you. He is outside of any league you could possibly define. He is the holiest of all beings. And more than any other attribute in the Bible, God is identified by his own holiness. He has a holy mountain, a holy book, a holy spirit, a holy son. No one yawns at the holiness of God. No one fist bumps God. God is dressed in glory. E. A. Hodge says, the holiness of God is not to be conceived as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the concept of God's consummate perfection and total glory. God's holiness is not something that he acquires over time. It's who he has always been. And the seraphim are holy creatures. And what we have to differentiate about the seraphim and God is that the seraphim's purity is derived and not inherent. God's holiness is not derived from the people around him. You and I become holy because we walk with wise men, we walk with wise women, but God's holiness is not derived. It is a part of his nature. And the reason that the seraphim are burning is because they reflect the one that they are near to. Their holiness is derived from the Holy One. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Long before James writes chapter 3 of his epistle, Isaiah knows something about the human heart. That he is a man of unclean lips because the hearts are the monitor, or the lips are the monitor of the human body. It is the dipstick to your soul. And Isaiah pronounces a curse on himself because he has never realized in his life who he is. Because in the opening pages of Calvin's Institutes, you don't even have the remotest clue who you are until you understand who God is. There is no escape for Isaiah here. He is just confronted with an accurate estimation of his own pollution. And he realizes here that he is before the king of holiness. You and I flatter ourselves, we judge ourselves by ourselves and among ourselves, as the saying goes. But until we see God for who he is, we will never see ourselves for who we are. There's nothing cavalier here. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. 
This is a fiery creature who can't touch what he's about to touch. So he uses tongs. It's interesting. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, or here am I. Send me. It's the only logical response to God, right? A God who takes away our guilt and our sin. He says, it's gone. It's atoned for. And then he says, who's going to go? And Isaiah goes, obviously, obviously me, right? Here am I. Send me. And the king of glory, Yahweh, is who he sees here. Go and tell this people, verse 9, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their eyes dull, their or their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. That was my intro. I have a question for you. What is the Bible all about? What's the Bible all about? There's one theme in the Bible, and it's one word. If you've grown up in the church, maybe you've missed the forest for the trees. What's the Bible all about? Turn to John 12. John 12, verse 27. This is days before Jesus dies. John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was about to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Now, pay attention here. 
But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things, verse 41, Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. The most exalted vision in the entire Bible is of a Galilean carpenter who is about to be slaughtered. John makes it clear. Jesus is Yahweh. And the one that angels cannot look at. Who causes the thresholds of heaven to shake. Is troubled. Because he's about to die. This is John 12. And I want you to just see the sequence of events here. Because sometimes on a quest of exposition we lose what's happening. 50% of the gospel of John is about the last week of Jesus' life. That's why it's different than the synoptic gospels because there's a turning point in chapter 11. You know what it is. It is the high point of Jesus' ministry. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And it's not immediate. He waits. Let it stew. Let him be good and dead. Give it four days. And he gets there knowing he's about to heal Lazarus. And then it says that he was deeply distressed in John eleven thirty three, And in John eleven thirty five, 35, he, wait, he weeps. The God who shakes the universe. The cedars, it says in the Psalms, are shaking at the sound of his voice. Is he himself shaken because his friend had died? Lazarus was wrapped up, bound up, placed in a tomb, made alive not by medical treatment, defibrillators, but by the voice of God saying, come out. This is the king of glory. This is the Lord of hosts. And the next day, people are coming into Jerusalem for what? The Passover. How many people? Well, we know by the census, there were 256,500 lambs slaughtered during the time of the Passover on any given year. So if you take an average lamb feeds 10 people, we get the rough estimation, or the commentators do, of 2.5 million people traveling through Bethany to get to Jerusalem. It is the proverbial grapevine into the city. And as they come into the city for the Passover, there's only one thing that they're talking about. Lazarus, the guy who was dead. Come on, dead, dead, dead is made alive. How? Jesus. He's going to be our king. He raised him. 
And it says here that the chief priest, John 12, 10, planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. Now Jesus knew that when he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to die. In Luke 9, there's a turning point, and it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And when, he know, when he's going there, Thomas says, well, let's go with him so that we might also die with him. There's no secret about what's going to happen. John 12, 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. I mean, just think about this. Sat on it, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. It's not even the donkey. It's the donkey's baby. There's nothing lower than this. These people wanted a king to deliver them from the rule and reign of Rome, from the bondage of Rome, to free them from Rome, to give them joy as they were ushered into an earthly kingdom with an earthly king. These people crying out did not see him as a spiritual savior. They saw him as a military king, a temporal deliverer. Think about this. This is eon, eon, the king of the universe. The king of the universe is riding in, not on a glorious steed. It's not a gold-encrusted chariot. It's not people carrying him. It's on a donkey. The one whom angels hide their face from is no longer sitting on a throne. Isaiah spoke of him. He is sitting on a donkey. And he's not hearing the angelic anthem of mighty warriors. He's hearing the fickle and faithless voices of those crying out, Hosanna, who would in a few days be crying out, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. What shall we do with your king? We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. No surprise to this king. That's why in Luke 19, it's a triumphant day by name. Jesus looks over the city and weeps. I couldn't have made myself more clear. I'm not a part of an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. In John 10, they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus could not have been any more clear than this visual sermon, a public manifesto. Zechariah 9, he will come in on a donkey's colt. This is the most definitive way of saying, I am the king. I am the Messiah He's no longer wearing robes. He's wearing garments that would in a few days be divided amongst the soldiers that crucified him to a tree. 
for the sake of time. I said, what is the Bible all about? The answer is Jesus. Luke 24 tells us this. Didn't you get it? The Bible's all about me. That's what the Bible's all about. And the Bible's question is, do you know this king? He's a different type of king, and he has a different type of kingdom. It doesn't come by taxation or inheritance or bribery or by familial pedigree. It comes in one way. He comes in on on a donkey symbolizing peace because he himself, Isaiah said, would be called the prince of peace. How can you and I be made right with a holy king? How can we be made right with the prince of peace? Let me just read it for you. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing it in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. The reason you can have peace with this king is because he himself is our peace. And you want to know how holy God is? God's holiness has never been more manifest and God's hatred of sin has never been made more clear than when he slaughtered his only son so that you would be able to approach the king not as a distant subject but as a loved and adopted child. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, far too casually, God is our king, and God is also our father. We saw Jesus as king before his incarnation. We see him as king in his incarnation. And just lastly, I want to show you who Jesus is as king in the future. Because the Bible is not, your faith is not just a study of history. It's anticipatory. Do your kids know that? Sometimes they think the excitement, people always ask me, what's wrong with youth today? Do you know, Johnny, that so many students leave after their 18th birthday? Well, I don't know how many times they've ever heard their parents or their church or their pastors tell them, Jesus is coming back. And here's what it's gonna look like. Revelation 7, 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. There's no census here. There's not 256,500 lambs. 
Approximately 2.5 million people. No, no one can count this great multitude. Where are they from? Every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. This time it's not fickle hearts. It's the redeemed. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And all of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 